Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado. Joining us today for a little VR chat, it's Gordon McGladdery and Carly Knight. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Gordon founded A Shell in the Pit in 2011, where he works as a game audio sound designer and a composer. He's the co-host of Beards, Cats, and Indie Game Audio. We've had Matt on here before, so now that I've got both of you, you both owe us, me and Tim, on your podcast as well. Sure. <laughs> I booked it. Credits for Gordon include Fantastic Contraption and Rogue Legacy. You can find him on Twitter at A Shell in the Pit. You can find his website, ashellinthepit.com, and go find him and hire him there. Carly Knight. Carly is a sound designer based out of Seattle who works for FunBits Interactive. Her recent VR projects include Orbital Loop and Help. Uh, she also worked on Fat Princess's Ventures and has worked as a listening tester for Dolby, which I'm curious to hear about. You can find her on Twitter at C-A-R-L-N-Y-T-E. Her name has two Ys in it, Carly Knight. Hi, Carly. <laughs> Hi. You can find the rest of us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado, and Tim is at Azmuth Audio. So let's talk VR. I want to kind of get into this with you guys as quickly as possible. I did my best to kind of set up where you're at, but, you know, Carly, you've given some recent talks at some conferences that, that everyone was really raving about, and, and that was the, the big motivating factor for me because I don't know you particularly well online, so I'm super excited to get to talk to you here. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of this, uh, just the nature of some of your talks before? I know you did a kind of a broad overview talk before. Yeah, well, actually, me and Gordon did. We were on a panel together at PaxDev about a year ago, and we just gave an overview on VR audio, really. It was just kind of acquaintancing people who had never tried VR, had never thought of VR before, what that looks like for audio. And then a few months ago, I gave a talk at this meetup called Audio Bash. It's a combination of the Vancouver and Seattle area game audio groups. It happens, I think, about biannually, twice a year. Mm -hmm. So that talk at the Audio Bash, I talked about three of the VR games that I've worked on, and I compared different techniques that I used in implementing and just approaching and designing them, because all of them were just kind of different in many different ways, but a lot of it had to do with the different hardware that I was using. So I just focused on those, <laughs> those three. <laughs> so I'd kind of like to just kind of roll through maybe the, the five minute condensed version of the overview talk, just so we can get some of the terminology and some of the language out of the way here for people that may not be particularly familiar with VR. And the reason I want to do that is so I can roll through that so we can get deeper into the weeds of it. I've had a couple of VR projects come my way as well. I've had to you know, run up that learning curve as fast as I possibly can. I've found my own challenges as well that even have less to do with linear stuff and more to do with the transition from speakers to headphones. Mm -hmm. Mm. But let's let's kind of talk, if you can, uh, just give me the, the, the broad overview. What is VR? What are the terminologies for VR that you're going to hear that are a little bit different from other type of interactive or even linear audio? Okay. Uh, well, HOTF stands for head-related transfer function. That has to do with how your ears filter and process audio in the real world and use that process that information. I guess to some degree, I'm going to assume a lot of people that are listening to this already have kind of a, a fundamental overview. So ambisonics is, there are different orders of ambisonics, but first order ambisonics is four channels of audio. So, and you can put ambisonic microphones up and it's a format that's been around since the seventies. It's been around since forever. Mm -hmm. And it's four microphone capsules that, that are set up in a array that allows you to rotate the direction that the microphone array hears in 360 degrees. And again, this has been around since the 70s, but only since VR and 360 has it really started to come into play as a delivery format. Mm -hmm. And that's where I've mostly come into play with it. The interesting thing about ambisonics is a lot of people that are not familiar with VR and they hear VR they say, well, damn it, now i got to go get an ambisonics mic. Yep. Now I have to go work entirely in ambisonics. And um, my experience has been to this point that, no, that's kind of not the case. Yeah, because you've actually been hands-on with the ambisonic mics, correct? I have not. Uh, I've spoken with people that have, but my... Because well, we were talking on Slack, and you had 
the cameras that were insane, right? Yes. Well, so okay, yeah. So yeah. Well, the, the cameras mics. had ambisonic mics built into them, but they sounded right. like just total butthole. <laughs> right. Uh, they sounded like cell phones. Okay. <laughs> and that's the case with a lot of these. So, you know, GoPro makes a 360 camera. And the one that we were working with was this, you know, $70,000 Nokia 360 camera. But even the super, super high-end 360 cameras, they do have ambisonics mics built into them, but they're typically piezoelectric mics that are just not, uh, they're not there for anything but reference right. in a broad sense. Oh, I right. see. Yeah, because I feel like I feel like audio designers have to work with ambisonics the most when it comes with they're working on a cinematic like 360 project for a client and they hand them an ambisonic recording like from the location. So here's been my experience. Ambisonics sits there right now kind of as a delivery format. So if you're working in the Facebook 360 tools, which the history of those tools come from two big ears. Mm -hmm. um, So Facebook 360 bought two big ears and and they had their whole tool set. And so basically you can take a bunch of mono or stereo or whatever point sources and create an eight channel output. And from that, you can encode a four channel ambisonics mix with the tools. So that's where it seems more handy to me. Because you run into the, you can't use a binaural recording very usefully in VR either because everything's locked in place mm-hmm. and you want, right. you want to get this control back to, you know, be able to create your baked file from scratch rather than be given a baked file. So to kind of step back and spell that out even a little bit more, the main difference between a 2D stereo or even 5.1 linear mix and a VR mix, there's two main differences. One is that you have to deal with the HRTF. You have to be able to rotate the sound sphere in real time based on the, the observer's head movement. And two is it's always in headphones. You know, when I'm watching stuff in the theater, watching stuff at home, I'm mixing the sound, I'm producing the sound to come out of speakers that are a distance from my head. And that gives me a whole lot of the cool HRTF things naturally, because if my speakers are not attached to my head, then when I turn my head, then I get those kind of effects. Mm. With headphones, the speakers are are plugged straight into your brain. And so you have to do all of those effects basically in software in real time based on the data of your head position that's going on. So that's kind of the big difference is you have to be able to create a mix that can dynamically rotate based on where the listener's at, which for you guys in interactive stuff, that's like, yeah, you know, the user's going to do stuff. And so that's what's going to (laughs) happen. <laughs> For me, and coming from linear, that's like, oh my God, I'm losing an element of control of this art that I'm trying to create. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's actually what drew me into interactivity a little bit more was the the kind of the randomness and having to try to control randomness. That's what I really found fun about game audio. <laughs> yeah, and dynamic mixes that happen based on user input are utterly terrifying to me. <laughs> oh, I love them. I love them. <laughs> like, like even even with my music mixes and stuff, it's just side chains all over the place. Just because I think it's cool <laughs> to like have the music mix itself, you know? So as a generally linear guy, what I've had to do is I've had to come to grips with the fact that I'm going to basically be creating a linear mix as much as I can, but based on the head movement, my mix is going to shift. Now, it's not shifting dramatically. It's not doing insane like level rebalances or anything else like that. Mm -hmm. It's just the panning moves around. And honestly, in practice, it's cool as hell. It's way cool to have the the design actually track with your head. And, And like the first time I did it, you know, and I had some graphic design piece that was, you know, entirely CG, but it was linear. Um, but it had all these kind of cool, big, flashy, bursty, interesting looking things. And so I, I really had some cool hooks on which to lay some really cool sounds. And so that worked out really well because I was really happy with how the sounds sounded coming out of speakers. And then the way that they translated and the movement translated to the head movement, that worked out really well, too. But I know that that was just like the very, very first tippy toe for me kind of into that whole interactive space. So I, I feel like I've totally like run off on a rail here. <laughs> no, it's good to get your perspective. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, my perspective is speakers and my perspective is locked off. And so what I've had to learn how to do is how to give up just that much control to the user. And it's forced me to kind of become more acquainted with the tools that you guys use every day in interactive 
which is, you know, taking parameters and taking variables that are generated in real time based on user interaction and using those to dynamically affect your mix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are, are you doing anything that's accounting for frequency spectrum of signal coming from in front of your face versus behind it? Or is the plugin taking care of that pretty well? The plugin handles all of that. So okay. have you guys played with the, uh, with the Facebook 360 tools yet? No, no. I haven't yet. Dude, they're the bomb. They're so Oh, good. that's good to hear. Good. They're so good. Yeah, I've actually thought about it, uh, using it to construct like an ambisonic ambience to put in a game, but I never got around to it. I feel like if you guys ever ended up with, you know, VR cinematics and cutscenes and stuff that happen, like that's gonna be the route to go. Yeah. That's great. Well, wow. I mean, if it's the three Deception folks, Carly and I were both using three Deception when they got bought and we're all sad, so we yeah, should uh, great. <laughs> I mean, I got to say, it seems like Facebook bought two big ears, which creates 3D deception and kept the smart people on board and added a whole bunch of smart people to them. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it was mostly just two people, was it not? Yeah, I think it was just two guys. Yeah. yeah. The way the plugin works is it basically creates a 360 panner on each individual track. So you put a plug-in on the track, be it whatever, however many source channels you want it to be, mono, stereo, mm-hmm. ambisonics, quad, whatever. And it takes that and it translates that into a 360 panner. So basically you have a, a puck, you know, a dot on a circular grid and you can just move it around in space. Okay. And then you've got a separate slider for height and for tilt. Oh, great. Okay, cool. And then you just do your mix and then you you route the whole thing through a centralized plugin, and then the centralized plugin creates this eight channel file that you then export into a standalone encoder, and the standalone encoder is what gives you the first order ambisonics back. Right. Yeah. It's very similar to the tool they had before they were purchased. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I did one test where actually it wasn't a test; it was a, it was a gig. Someone paid us for it. It was cool. Where we went to. A, it was basically almost like a TED Talk style live presentation of just a person on stage. But there was a Q&A at the end of it. And so what would happen in the Q&A is, you, you know, because it's 360 and there's a 360 camera right in front of the stage, you can turn your head and you can look at the person asking the question. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And what I was able to do with the actual visuals is I was able to kind of do math and calculate where those people would be. And the question I had going into it was, all right, well, in reality, when this person in the back of the room speaks into a microphone, the sound is still coming out of the Mm -hmm. speakers in the front of the room. So when I do the mix, do I map it to the front of the room or do I not? And what ended up being the case was it was really, really, really useful to map the sound to the location of the person in the room mm-hmm. so that you knew where to turn your head to look to them and find them. Mm-hmm. It'd be fun to fake up a fake, like, dry signal. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like, I'm obsessed with... You're just with... thinking creatively. <laughs> My source audio was a, a feed from the board, and I had four mics up in the room. Right. And so I was able to basically do the math and put the mics that are up in the room oh, okay. on static emitters in the mix... And yeah. then, you know, I, just with automation, I was moving the board feed around to where it needed to go when people were asking questions. And man, it worked really, really well. I was cool. super, super happy with how that turned out. Yeah, I'd love to try that. Did you have to account for the listener looking away from somebody when the audience member was talking? You know, like if they didn't hear it or didn't look around in time and they couldn't hear the person clearly. So you do a little bit of... I guess, fudging of how far from the listener you put the emitter in the context Mm -hmm. of the mix. And so what I tried to do was not put it so far away that if you turned 180 degrees away from it, you wouldn't hear them. And honestly, the way those tools work, they're tuned up really well to where you don't lose somebody entirely. That's always been one of the trickiest things for me with regards to panning in headphones, especially dynamic panning, is shit moves too fast. Like it jumps from one ear to the other and in, re- in reality, in real life, nothing ever is only heard by one ear and not the other. And I feel like the Facebook tools do a really, really good job of never just abandoning one of your ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what binaural plugins have helped with in general. That's kind of like my test for uh, whether something is kind of true binaural or it's claiming to be binaural is, you know, listening to whether it, it just like quickly zaps through the head or if it actually feels like it goes around. 
Yeah. Yeah, there have been some tests, people trying out a different a bunch of different binaural plugins and a lot of the issues that some of them would have was the panning from behind, from yeah. left to right. Sometimes it would be snappy. Mm-hmm. Other ones were smoother. So it seems to be a, a more difficult thing to pull off, but people have pulled it off really yeah. well. And even with microphones, not as much the snapping thing, but, you know, the 3DO microphones, yeah. just those ears, like those aren't binaural as advertised. If you, if you A-B it with a true binaural recording, it just goes straight through. It doesn't go around. It just sounds like wide stereo mm. to me, but I'm like pretty confident in that. And I've talked to other experts who agree. So, you know, what I've found is that as far as source material, source recordings go, rolling binaural, rolling ambisonics, all that kind of stuff, to me, it's been not important. It is not very useful. It's been not important. What yeah. it feels like to me is that an ambisonics microphone is basically an omni mic up in space, except it's taking up four channels, mm-hmm. which is cool because you know the thing will auto track around. But at the moment you start laying other stuff against it in the mix, well, you might as well have just put an omni mic up. And what I found, especially in that conference recording, was that by having multiple layers of mics up in the room and placing them with the panner, with the kind of emitter, with the Facebook tools. In other words, recording traditionally and using the tools to place things correctly. Right. I got a very, very real, very kind of natural sound that sounded exactly like it should have sounded. And because I was live in the room when I was making the recording, it sounded very, very similar to my memory of how that room sounded. Right. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really cool. And to me, it, it makes me feel like if I'm going to play in VR, the important thing is not having an ambisonics mic and it's not having a binaural mic. It's not having those type of source recordings. It's having the back end and understanding how you're going to distribute and understanding what tools you're going to use to get from your source recordings to your actual listener. Yep, absolutely. Yep, agreed. So I feel like I've been talking this whole time. So why don't you guys tell me about the challenges and the expected, unexpected things that you've been dealing with as you've been diving into VR? What are the problems that you've been having to solve that are unique to VR? I've got several mm-hmm. There are a lot of things I expected and then didn't expect. I'll try not to talk too long here. The main one that I've been thinking about and harping on for like over a year now, I wish I had something new to say, but uh, like the hierarchy of sound priority has been completely upended and we no longer have this VO music sound effects, Foley backgrounds, like hierarchy that used to be so important and reliable, you know, taken from the linear world. None of that matters anymore in VR because we absolutely have no no control over what the user is focusing on. We can try to draw the user's focus away. And I, I know Carly's done like more creative things in this realm than we have so far. The music thing for me, I, I kind of kicked it to the curb. I kicked non-diegetic music to the curb for uh, the first long while. And we, we haven't had a game where it's been useful to have a soundtrack in for the past couple of years, like a score, you know, and voiceover coming from like an internal dialogue. It's weirding people out as well. <laughs> suddenly, yeah. suddenly like things that would just, you wouldn't even cut, you know, for a linear piece, like pennies rolling across the floor, barely in sight tiny objects bouncing around. We have to account for all of that. And sometimes it has to be the priority depending on what the user is looking at. Like it might have to be the number one thing in the mix, this tiny pebble, because the user keeps picking it up and throwing it on the ground and looking at it and getting their face right up to it. So that whole structure got just like thrown away and we have to completely re-examine that. And it's been really fun actually. Do you feel like that's specific to interactive or specific to VR? Probably more specific to interactive, but that's just like my off the cuff answer. I might have a different one if I thought (laughs) about it for two seconds. Uh, All VR is to an extent interactive because the user can turn their head now. So they're interacting. Correct. Yeah. They're interacting more than they were with like a flat media. So it all depends on the extent of the interaction, I suppose. One of the other projects that I've worked on with a similar client, I think this was with the same client actually, was kind of a showpiece sizzle reel type thing. And again, you know, 100% computer generated, but it's basically on rails kind of running you through it. 
So the only user interaction is the head is the the head movement. But yeah, we did a couple of those. What was it called? Cinema. There was a yeah. There's an Unreal plugin that basically makes 3D movies for you. Yeah. So yeah. I you know a lot of people in my world are going to have a lot of their clients kind of start dipping their toe in that way. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that non diegetic music still works. In other words, non-head tracking music did work and VO did work, but I did end up having to place the VO on an emitter because, you know, it. I just kind of wanted to direct my listener's attention to where the action was because in a broad sense, this type of thing had, you know, the middle third of your VR screen with stuff going on and the back stuff was just kind of particle effects and just kind of, you know, filler. Yeah, right. Like my rule of thumb has been kind of like a, a graph where the greater the abstraction is, the more allowable it is to bring in more traditional hierarchies and right. non-diegetic soundtracks and stuff. If it's fairly abstract, then it's like, who cares where the music's coming from? But if you're creating a very realistic world, then then it's just, a, you know, you're breaking the fourth wall by putting this soundtrack in. Yeah, that makes sense. But Carly's done some cool music stuff. Tell us. <laughs> Well, one of the first prototypes I did was a project of attempting to put music in VR. It was really just an experience where you were sitting in this desert and kind of looking all around at these lanterns in the sky. And I actually pulled, I wrote a music piece that had all these different layers that I bounced separately and then placed as emitters in the 3D space. I kind of used reverb to smooth some of the the way it filled up in the world. But really the product of that was you were in this VR experience and as you turned your head around, the mix of the music subtly changed and kind of felt like it was breathing instead of it being stuck and trapped in in these headphones in your ears. So I've repeated that a few times in other games, the one that did actually ship with that technique was Help. It has a main menu that, it's like a main menu lobby area that you're in before you really start the game. And so that's kind of an abstract dark room. And then there's these music emitters all around the player. So as you look around, it kind of changes. So I don't know. I know a lot of people have different opinions on that working and that not, but when I did it, I really liked it. I mean, it was a lot more work and I had syncing issues. So I made all of those samples kind of asynchronous loops, mm-hmm. but um, I really liked how it sounded. <laughs> That's cool. I think the phrase a lot more work is really applicable to all VR audio. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. yeah. It really is. The panning is so much trickier especially if you automate stuff around and you just have to break stuff into more layers and implement them out in space more. Well, and one of the unsolved problems right now is that we're still using these point source emitters and that's not how sound works or propagates. If you have a rattling vent, the whole thing is making sound. Yeah, the problem that I came up with against with that music experiment a lot of the times was you could really pinpoint where that emitter was you know, to the point where you're looking at this point in space wondering why music is coming from there. Mm -hmm. So it just really took a lot of trial and error to make that not happen. And my approach that seemed to help with that was kind of filling in again with With that reverb. So it was coming from not just that one point. So it kind of blurred the lines of where it was. You know, that triggers something in my mind that was... It was years and years ago, but, you know, at the American Airlines Center, they at one point put in a 14-channel surround sound system around the arena. So I had basically 14 point source emitters that were spread out equidistant around the entire arena. And my job was to do kick-ass sound design that actually used those things, right? Oh, cool. (laughs) The stuff that didn't work was the stuff that stuck too closely to any one individual speaker. Mm-hmm. If I mm-hmm. tried to bounce from one speaker to the other like a cross, when I was actually in the arena, what would end up happening 
is you'd be sitting under one of the speakers and you'd hear this one speaker go Wah! and then it would go away and you'd just hear reverberation in the rest of the in the rest of the building. Right. Because they were too point sourcey. And so that didn't blend enough. The things that mm -hmm. did work was when I used more than one speaker, when I used multiple speakers at once and made like an aircraft like fly across the top of the roof or whatever and stuff like that. And so I'd, I'd have two tracks basically in parallel that were running and that kind of thing. Oh, I feel that's like that's cool. a similar concept, right? Yeah. Um, where you can just, you can help smooth things by just breaking it into more pieces and splaying them out in space more. Yeah, and I use that technique for not a music implementation that I was doing. I was had this one demo where I was modeling a really, really big stadium. It was like a game was going on, so there was a really loud crowd. And it was difficult for me because I would place these emitters and you could still tell that there are these emitters coming from these very specific spots. And I ended up fixing that by having kind of a slapback delay that came from a different direction. Mm -hmm. That was also kind of that blending solution that just made everything feel a lot more full and a lot more realistic. So it's funny, I didn't see the correlation between the two of those approaches until just now. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the same problem arises if you're doing point source background ambiences as well, which I think everyone is doing for VR now. Mm -hmm. Is doing either yeah, it's like, pretty common. Know, like quad source BGs mm -hmm. that they kind of stick to the ground so that the when the player turns around, it doesn't feel like the ambience is moving around. But at the same time, you run into the point source problem. However, what's nice about those is you can arrange it so that they're kind of locked to the player and that the player can never get close to them. Right. That's pretty handy. And then you also have frequency range working with you for ambiences, you know, because it'll be a lot of low frequency stuff, which is just harder to pinpoint anyway. I'll tell you a couple of tricks that I've found that, that have worked in a couple of different situations. For non-diegetic music, we've run this test both ways, but if you take non-diegetic music and run it through a good up mixer that actually sums back down correctly, so you, in other words, you take a stereo source and you up mix that guy up into 5.0. Okay. And you place the 5.0 out in space appropriately around the user. The way the up mixers work is they, they break everything into narrow frequency bands and splay them into the different channels. Oh, that's fun. Okay, cool. Oh, cool. I've done that manually before. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you turn your head and the music shifts, but it never loses its balance. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because what I found with my experimentations, when I first started working on it, I was thinking really literally like straight ahead is the violin and to the right is the cello and to the left is the viola and that just wasn't successful. Yeah. And what I think works the best isn't something as simple as that. It's just making the music, the non-diegetic music, getting it to the point where it just subtly changes as you move your head and you don't particularly notice that it's changing. That's when it tends to work the best. Yeah. I found up mixing really, really works for that. Yeah, I really, really like that approach. Less work, too. <laughs> the Nugent Halo up mixer has worked well for that. We also have a hardware TC electronic box that is like the bomb for that kind of thing. But the Nugent Halo up mixer also sums back down appropriately. Because what ends up happening is, like from a math perspective, you have a stereo mix and it gets broken into frequency bands and split across five channels. And then in engine, it kind of appropriates what's in what channel. But in the end, it all comes back down to stereo into your ears again. Yeah, the two speakers attached to your head. So it's important for the up mixer because different up mixers are better at summing back down than others. So you got to find one that sums back down pretty well. But if you do that, what the effect is, is that you can turn your head, you can feel the movement as you're turning your head, but you don't feel the mix shifting. The other effect, though, is that it makes percussive stuff a little bit less punchy because it's splaying the frequencies out. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit genre dependent. But if you've got stuff that's not just hard, then you can really get some cool kind of location and just kind of envelopment that feels more like what VR should feel like without it having to literally come from an object in the world. Yeah, I think the disconnect is just when everything else in the VR experience is coming from the world, but the music is not. It's right. It's just yeah, a really, really exactly weird sensation. But to spell that even further, 
when you're talking about using beds for ambiences and that type of thing, a similar approach can be used as far as when you're building your base layers for your ambiences. You can take a stereo recording of you know this specific place in the world that you're that you're trying to be in, upmix that sucker, put it in five channels, keep it away like you were saying, Gordon. Keep it away from your user as far as proximity a little bit, mm-hmm. and you'll still feel that movement now. If you have, you know, ocean to your right and mountains to your left, you're going to run into different issues there. But if you have a relatively flat kind of ambience, that's that's definitely a solution that can at least get you started. Mm-hmm. I've also found that the recordings that I've made that are double MS. So in other words, it's an MS with a backwards facing microphone also. And so you take the rear facing cardioid and decode it also. Yep. Sheps actually makes a really, really kick-ass double MS decoding plugin that will take a three channel input and gives you five channels of output and you can rotate it around. And so I recorded a whole bunch of hospital ambiences, double MS, like a long time ago. They're on the Echo Collective site. So I pulled that stuff down, took it in 5.0 and put that stuff in place. And that stuff actually head tracked really well. And so the question I had for myself was, all right, what is the Minimum viable product. <laughs> minimal viable product. That's exactly what I was looking oh, for. Oh, great. So I was like, all right, what's the minimum viable recording I can make? that will actually translate and track enough in VR that's not like all the way up to, you know, third order ambisonics or whatever. Right, yeah. And what I found was that double MS, if you decode that sucker to 5.0 and you look up, it still does something that seems to work. Well, that's cool. So even though I don't have a Z axis, the math is still going to do something to emulate your ears kind of tipping up. Well, a lot of Z-axis interpretation is psychoacoustic anyways. The act of moving your head is what is making you perceive sound differently. Because we're not actually good at hearing things upwards that much. Exactly. Now, I haven't really run that against, you know, reality reality. I can't tell you how good that effect is as far as your Z-axis is concerned. But I can tell you it's doing something. It's not ignoring it. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, there's that. Anyways, all this stuff was coming to me, so I thought I'd spit it out before I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Carly, tell me about thinking about distribution as you're building your elements. Distribution, like what the uh, final like hardware is? Your final platform. Uh, That goes into a lot of what I've done because I've done a project for Oculus. I've done a project for Vive done some prototypes for Gear VR and a project for Daydream. And between all of those, my approach for everything drastically changed. What kind of things change in the hardware? Like what kind of things will one have that the other won't? Well, Oculus is pretty stand in place. It's possible to do room tracking, but that's not something that normal consumers have because you have to buy a lot more of their little camera thingies. So Oculus, when I when I do projects for that, I don't design with the expectation that the player can walk around in the room. Um, mm-hmm. So that changes how and where I place my emitters. And then uh, with Vive, it comes with room scale. So I have to design it and approach it in a way that everything still works if the player is walking around the room. And also with the Vive, the player can set up different sizes of rooms. So sometimes it is only room scale or sorry, a stand in place. And then sometimes it can be like, well, I don't know what the maximum is, but, you know, it can be a pretty big space. Ten by ten. I don't know. Daydream. The big difference was it was also stand in place. But the performance was really, really difficult to work around because if People aren't familiar. Daydream is a recent Google foray into VR. That's what they call the platform. And they have Daydream ready phones. And then the Daydream ready phone that's out right now is the Pixel. So it's, it is mobile VR. So that, that performance aspect of it really affected what tools I could use, which the answer ended up being I couldn't use any because <laughs> they're really CPU intensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did give a talk on the differences in implementation, so I'm trying to remember specifically, you know, specifics. The big thing between Oculus and Vive, I remember, was, again, how I placed the emitters, like the ambience emitters. 
as Gordon was talking about, one approach that a lot of people are doing is mounting ambience on the player. That way, you know, not only can you really control the proximity to the player at all times, but the player can move around the space and it doesn't matter. The ambience is going to stay exactly how you tuned it. So like, you know, you have your our emitters, like virtual speakers, and then we can just sort of route new sounds through them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did that. Like in a really big space, I would use trigger boxes that would fade in and out various ambiences that were, again, still ma- mounted on the player. So I could still just tune them once and control how their volume, depending on where the player was with these trigger boxes. Whereas the Oculus project that I did, I didn't have to think about that. So I just tossed the ambience around the the player. I didn't have to hook it and, you know, mount it on the player. And it, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. Actually, you mm-hmm. know, going back, I probably would mount it on the player because they're still, they can still lean forward and backwards and change that a little bit. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll add PSVR to the list. We've got two games that are going to be shipping on PlayStation. Oh, yeah, I haven't I haven't done PSVR at all. That's been problematic because they don't the PlayStation doesn't accept any of the current binaural plugins. So, we can't use our HRTFs. They've got one built into the system that we have to use. It has almost no tunable parameters, so we do have to kind of just Throw hands up in the air. Christopher, our uh, audio programmer, he built he built like custom attenuation tools for Fantastic Contraption, and they kind of you know they're working well enough, but we cannot get it to the same quality that we could for the Vive or anything running on PC. That's harsh. Yeah, which is frustrating. That would that would yeah. really suck. I was curious about that yeah. because I haven't worked with PSVR, but I had a friend who did, and. It sounded. It just sounds really difficult to not to not be able to control the how how it's being processed. One of the hugest things on the Vive is the attenuation curves, how finicky they are, and yeah. how you can't just rely on on what the plugin th- gives you. Yeah, it's it's not just a like toss it on and activate it and call it good. It's very much the whole catering to expectation rather than reality. Mm-hmm. That's assuming the plugins are scientifically accurate. They still don't sound right <laughs> when you're playing the game. So you have to... Luckily, uh, when we were using 3Dception, it did give us customizable attenuation curves. So almost every object in Fantastic Contraption has a custom attenuation curve on it, which is me picking the thing up and throwing it and then saying to myself, did that sound quiet enough for how far I threw it? Mm-hmm. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. <laughs> yeah. Which is it's pretty fun testing, I must say. <laughs> Throwing stuff, throwing things throwing in, stuff in VR never stops being fun. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of related to that, how do you deal with loudness as you're listening to stuff? Do you just kind of just feel it out? Or again, one of the big problems I've tried to figure out with regards to mixing in headphones versus mixing in speakers is when you're mixing in speakers, you calibrate your speakers to a certain loudness. You know exactly how loud everything is. So you know what your relative balances are. When you're dealing with cans, how do you even approach that? It's a huge pain in the ass right now. Mm-hmm. And Carly noticed one of the biggest annoyances Yeah, was that the two, was it the Oculus or the Vive? It was the Vive. There was earlier version that's, it's earlier than the consumer version that's out right now that I was working with called the DK1. No, that was Oculus. Well, they, they both, the they both use DK. Oh, did they have... DK oh, did they? Oh. development kit. <laughs> I just I just called it the the print the 3D printed thing I had. <laughs> the DK1 and then the DK2 that my studio later got had massive differences in their mix. And what it boiled down to was the DK1 didn't have a headphone port on the HMD. You had to plug your headphones into your computer. And the DK2 introduced a headphone jack on the HMD. And if you use that, the sound was like almost 10 dB quieter than if you plugged it into your PC. Wow. And I just discovered that because, again, I was working with the DK1 and the rest of my office was working on the DK2. And they kept complaining about it being too quiet. And I was like, it's really loud. I don't understand. (laughs) 
And then I just happened to try it on one of their HMDs, and I was like, wait, it is quiet. Like, what's going on? So I did all these tests comparing the two, and that's what it boiled down to was that headphone jack. And I sent them an email, and I never heard back. And <laughs> I haven't tried the consumer vibe, so I don't know if that's still an issue. But that's pretty disturbing because a lot of, a lot of studios will make a game that ports both to Oculus and Vive. Right, and yeah. if that's still a problem, that means the mix is going to be massively different between the two. So that, yeah, that sucks. The sad reality right now is that most developers aren't hiring professional sound people. So the vast majority of games still sound really terrible and are all way too loud and distorting mm -hmm. and yeah. have no instance limiting and they're summing and there's awful. Yeah. I mean, even I remember I played... The Lab, that's what it's called, right? Mm -hmm. That's Valve's really, really great collection of these mini games. They kind of have like a lobby and then there's maybe eight different games that you can go into from the lobby. And even between those little mini games wrapped up in the same game, there was vastly different. Yeah, up to like 15 dB. Yeah, vastly different, different. Mix, mix levels. We were all like, oh, sweet, Valve released something official. We can use that as our baseline for our mix. The easiest way to do a mix, and that's how I've done it for linear and everything as well, is just find the correct like listening volume, set my master volume on my interface to that, and just don't touch it. Yep. And then just mix until things are comfortable. Yep. Yeah. And then usually, a lot of the time, I'll be like bang on minus 23. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to use that same approach for the Vive because it's like, okay, the audio interface is the Vive, and that's going to be the same for everybody. So I can just find a thing that's a good volume and set it to that and mix to that. But since nobody's had made anything yet, <laughs> there was no official thing that I could just set my volume yeah. to. We listened to a bunch of games. I went over to Colin Northway's house, and we just listened to a bunch of stuff, and we found the, you know, the loudest game and the quietest game, and we just set our volume right at the middle and and try to mix for that it's just ah, like so hack and slash good. yeah i i remember like in a panic i like direct messaged you on <laughs> twitter because i was in the process of doing the final mix on this one game and i made that discovery with the volume discrepancy between the dk1 and the dk2 and i was like Gordon, and i just like, freaked what out because i like, didn't know about it what did you do for this <laughs> you and you're like what about? i had oh, no God, idea God. <laughs> Yeah, because up until then, my approach was I throw a master meter on my my master output and I aim for minus 23 mm -hmm. LKFS, you know, and then also do that fixed point on the dial, mixing to that, finding the comfort range too. And also like what I would do because, you know, you can turn up in game up to like 100 mm -hmm. a percent, I guess. I wanted to make sure that 100% wouldn't like blow somebody's ears up if they mm -hmm. like accidentally did that. But yeah, then I then I made that discovery about the DK2 and yeah. it just all went out the window. So So broadly and, it feels and, like the answer yeah. is is put a meter on it and try and hit 23-ish. Unless if you're working with the Vive, then it's going to be too quiet. Gotcha. And because nobody is hiring professionals, all the games are too loud. Yeah. If you hit minus 23, then you are way too quiet. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have to mix a bit loud if you don't want to be the game, the outlier game. The one that game that's have to quiet. The controls for, you know? Yeah. Though I'd, I would always rather be the game that's too quiet than the game that's too loud. I mean, it seems like with games, you're going to you're gonna put your head in a game and stick with it for a minute. You're not flipping like from song to song on, on your iPod or whatever. So it's maybe a little bit less of an issue there. Right now, a lot of the games are very small. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. and also the volume controls aren't super user-friendly. So I really didn't want to bank on the expectation that the user is going to adjust it up and down between experiences. Right. But, I mean, still, I can't even remember what I ended up doing. I think I... <laughs> I think I ended up turning it to to seventy percent, and if it was comfortable, like comfortably loud, then then I just called it good. Let's propose like a good sounding VR bundle for uh. <laughs> like a curated good sounding VR bundle for Steam or Humble or something. 
It's just <laughs> blank video, but it sounds amazing. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> so one other issue that I've started to have with regards to moving from speakers to headphones is in a broad sense, in a mixing sense, making shit sound cool because I don't have a sub. I don't mm -hmm. have a center channel. And I have a bunch of point sources that are being affected with algorithms. So when I have a big event that I want it to be kind of a signature key kind of event, how do you guys approach those types of signature type individual little moments to make them sound specifically larger than life, cool as hell? Well, we still, in a sense, have a center channel. We have access to the entire, you know, stereo field. And then with, with the HRTF stuff, even more. So I haven't like exploited that though, to make things big. I will use a non 3d sound if I want something to be big and obvious, um, or non 3d layers. So just regular stereo pipes straight in like that might have a faked environment, but are just more of a direct thing. They're unfiltered by the HRTF plugins and they're generally just like crisper and cleaner. That's one technique I've used. Mm. That seems like the thing, right? Yeah. I mean, just don't be afraid to break that if you need to break it to make a certain thing sound cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like for me, I've the the moments where I felt like it was a really cool, a really cool moment in an experience was when it really felt like it was right in the space. Like one thing that I really liked about some VR games that I've played is when it has a really, really good sense of space. Like the reverb is spot on. It feels really expansive and large. Th those are moments that I will always remember. So I tried to emulate that on my own. And that's the moments that I really like in, in the projects that I've done is when there's, you know, like I mentioned earlier, that slap back delay from the, from the crowd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really, really like that moment. It felt larger than life because it felt like it was reverberating in a really, really large space. So kind of along those lines, what are your thoughts of, in-engine reverb versus baked reverb for that type of thing? If you can bake it really... I I would prefer to use in-engine Yeah. for VR. I mean, I just did a Game Jam game, but it was very 2D, and I baked the reverbs for that, and it sounded awesome. But for VR, I really prefer in-engine. And I, I haven't tried the Steam, Steam Audio tools yet. Me neither. Um, you haven't? They look really promising yeah really promising I can't, I can't wait for them to support middleware <laughs> so what's the basis for that what's the thought process of that for me if it's baked you know and especially if it's an emitter that reverb will only be coming from that emitter whereas reverb in in real space is it coming from a bunch of different directions so baking it in doesn't make sense to me at least if it's a mono file but if you're experimenting with with stereo stuff or your 50 placement it'll probably work just fine on the mono front it wouldn't be good yeah i mean one thing that i've done for another 2d game which i think maybe wasn't worth the work but could be could work in vr but i still think would be more work, work than it's worth is you could separate a mono signal from a you know surround reverb signal as well or yeah. file so you could have you could have your reverb reverb files and your drive files separate and then marry yeah. them in the game so that your reverb is coming from everywhere but your point source is still accurate but that does sound like just too much work we can do it in engine so yeah i i would only not do an engine if it was cpu mm -hmm. the cpu performance you know allotment you know one thing that i really wanted to experiment with that i never got around to is fmod has this audio effect called transceiver and you can route audio through that and then place that in the world however you want i don't know if that makes any sense but like in effect it means that you can have point source emitters for effects like reverb and you can place that however you want specifically in the world i think that would be really really cool to do but i could never quite figure out how to use transceiver <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys have been awesome. This has been like super, super cool for me. It's, it's a whole new world for me. There are things about it that are 
that are scary, but there are things about it that are super, super exciting for me also. You know, my eyes have been opened to what those tools can do with regards to placing things in space and how, uh, how dynamic and how interesting that kind of stuff can sound, especially when you compare it to your only left and right panning in speakers. The fact that I can move stuff from in front of me to behind me and around me and all that in a convincing way has been really, really interesting for me as a sound designer. Mm-hmm. The little kind of weird hypotheticals and math questions about putting mics up in space um, and then actually you know, relating them to picture has been, has been super interesting as well. And I feel like there's a lot of ground still to explore there. It's a cool world, man. It's fun. I'm digging it. Yay. Yeah, it's pretty neat. <laughs> it's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. I actually haven't worked on a VR project in a couple months, and I really, really miss it. Mm-hmm. It's just, I've been, it's real fun. Our team is working on them, but I haven't been super hands-on for a while. Um, though we are starting a new sort of secret thing with Colin Northway that Ooh. I think I'm going to just force my way into, even if it means I fall behind on my composition duties. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I have, I've been testing a lot, which has been nice. But most of the actual like hands-on stuff Chris and Joey have been doing in M, so I miss it too. <laughs> <laughs> Tear. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks for thanks for having the talk. It's thanks for having us, Renee. Yeah. Thank cool, you. Man. This is great. We'll we'll chop it up and send it to the world and see what people say. Cool. Woo. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Gordon and Carly for jumping on the show with me. Thanks, guys. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders. Go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. They got that new uh, Sound Devices Mix Pre-3 out that I'm going to buy. (laughs) (laughs) That's why it's on eBay. That's right. right, Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. I am, dude. I'm totally going to buy that thing. I've been looking at it. I don't even... Dude, it's so good. I don't even know. It's so good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.